Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for Andy. Thank you for his wife, Jill, here as well today. Lord, we thank you that uh, he's here to minister to us. And we pray for a wonderful sense of the anointing of your Holy Spirit on him. And we pray you'll give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what he's bringing to us today. Thank you, Lord. Good morning, everybody. Lovely day, isn't it? Good. Actually, May is often quite disappointing. Have you noticed that? The weather is often a bit dreary. But you can't say that about this May, can you? Certainly this weekend. Now, we're going to share together. But um, first of all, um, let me introduce Jill to you, the better-looking of the pair. She's going to say just a couple of words quickly. Yeah, I just wanted to bring greetings, really, from another church in New Cross, Micah. Um, We go to Micah. We've been there for five years. Wonderful, warm, rich Um, group of people and it's fantastic to be here. I felt God say two things as I was sitting here worshipping and begin both begin with P don't worry this isn't the Pentecost preach but the first thing is that I felt God really was walking amongst us like a mother and a father and he said are you open to receive something personal for you today really with your name tag on it and Jesus is here and he wants to come through into your very heart. We, we just sang, didn't we? Break our walls down. God has something personal for you with your name on it, but he's also wanting to stir a passion. A passion. Maybe a passion in your heart that has gone a little bit or it's just kind of at the bottom and it's a got, you've forgotten a little bit, or it's, you've had some disappointments, but something that you have felt passionate about in the past, and it's kind of got, it's gone a bit cold. Holy Spirit wants to stir that passion, but he can't stir that passion until he, you hear him speak your name, and you receive him personally. So I just want to ask you, church, are you open today to let Jesus, who stands outside, he wants to come in. He, I know he's within us, but he wants to come within. And we, we prayed, break our walls down. Now, I'm a therapist. I'm a counselor. And I know how defended I am. I'm defended from you. I'm defended from my husband. And I'm defended at times when I shouldn't be. And I'm defended from God. How, does, how do we defend ourselves? Well, just three quick things I want you to maybe just close your eyes and just picture your heart. And I want to ask you to take, ask the Holy Spirit to help you to melt those walls and to invite him in because he has a burning heart this morning. He has a burning heart and in his eyes are flames of fire and those flames of fire are flames of love for you. And he wants to come in in a fresh way and speak your name. But he says, there are thoughts. These are the defenses. There are thoughts. There are feelings or lack of them. And there are behaviors that are like walls that stop him coming in. And Jesus wants to come in today. So I just want to, in the worship, what thoughts were you fighting negative thoughts, repetitive thoughts, just maybe name one or two of those thoughts, thoughts of comparison, of not being good enough, 
Just give those, release those thoughts to Jesus. They're your defenses. They're your walls. Often that means the Holy Spirit can't come in and do stuff because the thoughts are like walls. Just capture a thought and give it to Jesus. Let it go. Emotions. Some of us aren't feeling very much. And you think, here I am on Pentecost Sunday. I don't feel anything. Aren't you supposed to feel something? Holy Spirit, whether it's numbness, whether it's sadness, whether actually we're quite angry and irritated and cross, Holy Spirit, come into our emotions. We do not want our emotions to be a blockage to you. Come into our emotions and use our emotions for good. We don't judge ourselves for having emotions or thoughts. But they're not all about who we are. And behaviors, Lord. We, I want to say sorry, Lord, today for being too busy this week and standing in the worship thinking, oh, Lord, I didn't spend so much time with you this week. Behaviors, <clears throat> shameful behaviors, all kinds of behaviors, block and are like walls. Holy Spirit. We give these things to you and help us to take our walls down and to see you standing with a burning heart of love like a mother and a father for his child. To see that burning eyes of fire that just burn love. Come in, speak to us today. And as we listen to your word through Andy, we pray that you would... Speak something so tailor-crafted for us personally and stir our passions, Lord. Your passions in our hearts. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good. Well, there'll be opportunity a bit later if things already started to rise. And think, hmm, yeah, that's probably a good thing to kind of sort or just at least offer to God or receive some prayer. Then um, we'll have opportunity later to do that. So do take that. Um, I just want to uh, mention this book. It's a book that I wrote um, last year and it came out a couple of months ago. I've got some copies here if you'd like to come purchase one. And uh, it's really based on my experiences of uh, both running uh, something called the Happiness Course and engaging with people, communities all around, and uh, something that it's kind of flowed. So, in a sense, it's aimed not so much simply for, well, it's not aimed simply for Christians at all, though Christians can engage with it. It's the sort of book that you could give to somebody uh, who has no faith, wouldn't ever darken the door of a, a, a church, but actually uh, would welcome the opportunity to kind of reflect on their lives a bit. That's pretty much what the Happiness Course does anyway. And it's called Lasting Happiness. And uh, if you want to come and either get a copy from me or ask me about it, then please feel free. All right, Pentecost Sunday, here we go. If, um, my heavenly, isn't it interesting? Maybe you kind of had some idea about this when you chose the songs to sing this morning. Heaven come down, heaven touching earth sounds like Pentecost, isn't it? And so that's my kind of subtitle, really, when heaven meets earth. Now, here's the thing. Cast your mind back 2,000 years ago, not quite, um, nearly, uh, Jerusalem. Um, Something's going on. We read it in the uh, first couple of chapters of Acts there. And something called 
Pentecost is happening. But if you were not British or, I don't know, African or wherever you might come from, but you were a Jew of the first century, people who lived in and around there at that time, when you heard the word Pentecost mentioned, what would you think of? Okay, so now that's what we think about, but if you were one of the people there before Pentecost, as we know it, chapter 2 it happened, we're still in chapter 1, and you were a Jew, come up to Jerusalem for this festival, what would you be thinking of if the word Pentecost was mentioned? A feast? A holiday? Actually, you, you wouldn't necessarily be thinking of a room, upper room, and then tongues of fire descending, because it happened, hadn't happened yet. In any case, you didn't know anything about that kind of thing. But you were a devout God-lover, Jewish, and you'd come up for Jerusalem like they did for what was called the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks or the feast known in Hebrew as Shavuot. Okay, so actually it was an agricultural feast or at least that's the basic meaning, the initial meaning is that it was the celebration, you can look at it in Leviticus and all the rest of it in the Old Testament and um, the basis of it, uh, here's one, not this one, but another one called Pesach, which we know by another name, which happened sort of Easter-ish time. And that was to celebrate, again, you can read it all there in the Old Testament, to celebrate the ingathering, the harvest of barley. They have war- war- warmer climates there, so by the time you get to March, April, you can get the harvest for barley, cereal crop. Oh, they call it Pesach. I'll tell you another name in a minute. Fifty days later, that might give you a few hints about what was coming next. Fifty days later, kind of this time, end of May, June, though they had different names for months, they had something called Shavuot, which was also a harvest festival, agricultural. This time, the harvest of wheat. It took a bit longer. Then there was another. There were other um, festivals that the Jews um, followed and celebrated, but these were the big three. And then about four months later, kind of end of September, October time, there was another one. They called that Sukkot. How about that? Say after me: Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. So we're all Jews now. That's fine. And uh, this was. Not simply the uh, initial grain harvest. This is the whole harvest, the grapes and everything else. This was the full in-gathering. We have a harvest celebration, don't we, traditionally? And this was pretty much it. And they called that Sukkot. Or if you like, Hebrew festivals celebrating creation came in this. If you kind of start at what we call January, by the time you get to March and April, you've got this one. And then 50 days later, you've got this one. And then uh, that gives you some kind of idea. This is agricultural harvest celebrations. And they would come up to Jerusalem from all parts of the nation. And for two weeks, like God commands in the Old Testament, and you shall rejoice. So there, miseries, you shall rejoice for two weeks. Come on, get on with it. And so they did. But here's the thing. Other nations around also had kind of celebrations like this as well. So in the first instance, it was a great thing to do because it it showed that they were grateful for God being good to them, giving them 
fruitfulness and harvest celebration uh, every year, something to rejoice about in a place that was quite close to the desert. And actually, if the rains fell, they're in big trouble. So no wonder they celebrated. But that is not the whole story, is it? No, it's not. Because the two great themes, if you read some of the scholars, they say the two great themes running through the whole of the Bible from start to finish, one is creation. God has made this world. Although it's got spoilt, he continues to make things, and we can celebrate that. That's what these harvest, that's the narrative, that's the storyline, that's the, the kind of dimension, if you like, the natural, the, the creatorial, what God has given to us as human beings, for which we're very grateful, or not, as the case might be. But there's another stream of uh, storyline going through the whole Bible from Genesis 3 onwards, right to the end of the Bible. They call that redemption. In other words, where things have gone wrong in his world, have they gone wrong in his world? One or two things, not quite as good as they might be, including human beings. God has intervened. He's done something because it's his will to do something about it. That's what this word means, redemption. The two streams. So the first creation, which went wrong, God has worked and is working still to bring a whole new life, a whole new creation, new heaven and earth, ultimately, into being. So, so those very th- uh, three festivals have another meaning to them, not just recognition for what God's done in creation, first creation, if you like, for what God is doing in our lives today. Maybe not quite so obvious, like wheat and barley and grapes being harvested, but something that happens, and that sometimes so breaks through in our experience that everybody can see it. But most of the time, it isn't like that, day after day after day. But it's happening. So the Passover, the first of those uh, celebrations, was called Passover. That's what the word means. Why was it called Passover? Passover what? Exactly. So they put the blood of the lamb that they just sacrificed on their uh, lintels, on their door frames. And God says, when I see the blood, I will, meaning I will pass over and not destroy you. And move past over onto those enemies, and they lost their firstborn son, etc. So this was a celebration of the intervention of God against bad oppression to bring hope and deliverance, yeah? Passover. Okay, so 50 days later, called Pentecost, because it's Pente, 50 days later, they go into the uh, wilderness, into the desert of Sinai, and then what happens? What happens 50 days later? What does God do? Where do they end up? Yeah, yeah, he's gone beyond that. It's the Red Sea. And they've got to a place called Mount Sinai. And what happens at Sinai? Yeah, God gives his law. In fact, God comes down and meets Moses going up. And when heaven and earth meet, there's thunderings and lightnings and all sorts of Oh, that sounds a bit like God intervening, don't you think? So having rescued his people, God to the rescue, now the whole point about the Ten Commandments and the law was not to slap 
laws onto people and say, do that or else, but actually say, this is how, having delivered you and saved you and set you into place, this is how you're going to live. At least, if you live this way, it'll be for life. Therefore, choose life, not... So God's equipping, giving his law, giving his... I'm caught up here. No. Um, giving his law and, in a sense, giving his spirit. Because if the law is going to do anything, it's got to be by the spirit. And that's what Pentecost is about. At least, st- we're still in the Old Testament. And it's called the, um, the Festival of Weeks. And then this other one, later on, uh, what do they do then? The Feast of Tabernacles. What happened there? Pardon? Big party, and what did they make? Booze, tents, that's why it's called. It's the Feast of Booze, it's called. And they would live in those for the period of time, for a week or two. Uh, Why? To remember exactly that God looked after them, even though they were in these kind of temporary habitations, and God was going to take them into the... Right, so it was just before. So ultimately, this was getting them ready to go into full possession, which, of course, they did. So already God has set out a kind of pattern of how he's going to work. So that when Jesus comes along, when the New Testament is written, written by what kind of people was the New Testament written? They were written by Jews, with possibly one exception, Luke. Actually, the story continues. So the New Testament is a continuation and fulfillment of the, of the old. Because God has not stopped moving in particular ways. He's moving and operating in exactly the same way. But this time, he's able to do it in a more complete way. So now he comes. And the very moment on the 14th of Nisan, which was the month, the Jewish month in the spring, the very moment when the Passover lamb, which was sacrificed every year, was sacrificed down the road in the temple, what else was going on? Jesus was on the cross. And the moment when Jesus died was the same moment that the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. Coincidence? No. Because as Paul says later, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And finally, all those years of sacrifice going through uh, the ritual of sacrificing lambs found their fulfillment. And the one great sacrifice for the salvation of the whole world, bang, happened in a moment of time. Well, it took six hours, you could say. So our great Passover has happened. And when we, by the time we reach Acts, the book of Acts, That's, of course, happened. And Jesus has been raised from the dead, and then Pentecost happens. Pentecost. What we now know is Pentecost. What we understand by happened at that point. But it was all Jews. They were Jews. They understood exactly what this was about when it happened. Oh, right, I see. And just as Sinai, the giving the law, was Israel's birthday, that they could trace their birth to that moment, so too your and my birthday as the church started on this day of Pentecost as well. Coincidence? I don't think so. Because when uh, in the rest, whoops, on the rest of the New Testament, uh, the harvest is talked about, the final harvest, it's talking about the equivalent of that. You get the kind of pattern. So that's kind of the background to it. And what it means, what it says to me is this. God has made his world... (laughs) 
which has got spoiled. But we're still living in it. You've got a body? You brought your body here today? And, and we're, we're different uh, ages, we're different genders, we're different races still, are we not? And that can be the cause of some friction sometimes. Because there's factors, forces being loosed into this old creation that bring pain as well as joy. Despair as well as hope. Sorrow as well as life. And that old world has been uh, uh, spoiled. In fact, so spoiled that ultimately it has to be destroyed. So God's got a problem, isn't he? Here we are, trundling along. We hope it'll get better, but it isn't actually. And ultimately, and we die. Not only we die, but the world is dying. And God is into life, not death. How is he going to do it? Well, he's going to start a whole new thing. And his, it's like this. See, what we see, I don't know if you can see that. It says human story, visible, what we see, experience. And in this context, the book, it's the Acts of the Apostles. What is seen and felt and touched and heard? The human story. And for most people, if they don't have any faith at all, that's all there is, basically. And we live in a society where the dominant narrative storyline is we're just made out of uh, matter and energy, and that's your lot. When you die, you die. And if that was the only story there is, it's not that hopeful, really, is it? But what they... Bible from start to finish is all about is saying this yes there's a human story and we're part of it but in that human story there's another story being interwoven and most of the time you can't see it so I don't know if you've had this experience you've been a Christian for any length of time uh, you think God it would be really good if I could see and touch you and the sense of your presence more every day, kind of really tangible. Ever felt that? Just the three of us. Okay, that's fine. I often feel like that. Lord, where are you? Most of the time, it isn't. Something, you get up tomorrow morning and, and, you know, how are you on 9 o'clock Monday morning? Okay. Some of us are full of the joys of spring. I'm not so, sure, I'm not so good at that. But they, uh, most of the time, things just simply seem to just continue. Sometimes, sometimes, like on the day of Pentecost, something happens and the second story bursts and explodes through. Have you ever had that experience? Either personally or in a corporate situation? And suddenly, it, you, you can't predict it. It just happens. I'm going to suggest in a, in a few minutes ways in which we can encourage that <laughs> by our lives. But all the time, there's these, if you like, these two stories of double narrative. I wonder what your experience is. Most of the time, maybe it's more of the same. So there's old saying, isn't there? Same old, same old. You know, Tuesday's a bit like Monday and Wednesday's a bit like Tuesday. And we can therefore end up thinking, there isn't that much more. Until we start to appreciate and recognize and invite in what is often not very physically evident, but we sense in our inner beings something, and we can't always put our finger on it. The reason we have the Bible is to help us put our finger on it, to say, ah, Actually, that's the story. I, am, I begin to understand. Let's keep going. Um, because 
Oh, well, uh, maybe I'll just flash past these because I don't think we've got the time. Don't worry about this. We'll come back to that another time. If I'm trying to bring all those different elements together, have a look at this. See, there's the Passover. And if you look at the early verses of Acts, um, Luke, who wrote it, said, um, having looked at all these things, I'm going to talk, or aware, in in fact, he's talking about Luke's gospel, his own um, first book. He's saying, these are the things that Jesus began to do and to say. He's talking about his life, death and resurrection, Jesus' ministry. And although he doesn't say it, what's implicit when he says those, that's what Jesus began to do, he's really saying, and in the next 28 chapters of this book of Acts, I'm going to talk about what Jesus continued to do. And I think it's a fair approximation. And that began in the next chapter, 50 days on, bang, with the day of Pentecost. So that's Pentecost. 2,000 years go on, roughly, roughly. And we're still in the same era, the same phase of what God is continuing to do. And we don't know when, question mark, question mark. One day, the the Feast of Tabernacles will come and the whole whole harvest will be brought in and God will wrap up what he's doing. How long is it going to be? Next Tuesday, do you think? Next Wednesday? We don't know. Anyway, one day will happen, the end of the age. But here's the point. Here's the point in all this. It doesn't really matter whether you remember Pesach or Shavuot. What matters is what God is up to. We'll think a bit more on that in a moment. And what God wants, it seems to me, more than anything else in his whole experience, is, well, you could put put it this way, heaven joining earth, and that's what's going to happen at the end of the age. Go back to the the, the early uh, chapters of Genesis, and you remember God makes Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they they decide away from God, they start a rebellion, etc., etc. What does God say? God came, and he says something. He asks a question. And he's looking for Adam and Eve, and he says... There you go. It's not difficult, this. He says, where are you? And that's the question that God has been saying ever since. And here's one of the ironies of life. So often many of us say we're searching for God or searching for something. That's kind of the basic human. That's why I read this book, because I think that's the heart of all that. Very often we'll say, oh, it's so difficult, da-da-da. Actually, here's the second narrative at work. The truth of the matter is, God is more keen to get in touch with you than you are to get in touch with him. And we go inside, you must be joking. (laughs) I don't think that. That's the kind, especially Western humans' response to that. Must be kidding. If there is a God, where is he kind of thing? And yet, when you trace the narrative through, all the time, God is searching for human beings, for men and women. Not only in Eden when it first happened, but right through the Old Testament. And uh, this is Sinai, where it says, and God came down. I've got a list here of, um, that's the, the whole point of that, the tabernacle, the temple, was that God would be able to meet human beings. God comes down, he's the holiest place, 
and the priest representing human beings goes in, whether it's going up or going in. God's heart is that we should meet him, that we should know him, that we should enjoy him forever. And later on, if that's the early part of the Old Testament, later on, I've got a whole list here of all the times where the phrase comes up, where God says, I will be your God and you will be my I will be your God and you will be my people. If, if anything is on the heart of God, that sums it up. I want to be your God. That wedding yesterday, who was watching the wedding yesterday? It's, uh, weddings are always moving. It's difficult to be, it's possible, but difficult to be cynical at a wedding. You can. You can stand back and say, well, uh, you wait until three months' time. It'll be da da da. But actually, when those, that man, that woman are being married like they were yesterday, it's, you can't help but celebrate, can you? You go, wow. This is, why? Well, because it's wonderful in its own right. But also, I believe, because it represents the very heart of what this universe is about. That the heart, like the preach, Michael uh, Curry was his name. Pretty good, isn't it? Pretty unusual. There in Windsor Castle. What's that? How to do it. That's true. Mind you, he overstayed his welcome a little bit anyway, didn't he? So 13 minutes, I think it was. But I think he probably would have liked to have done, didn't he? But that wasn't bad. The whole point I'm trying to say is that actually we were picking up there the heart of God, weren't we? Whatever people might have been believing in. I will be your God, you'll be my people. And then, of course, it happens. That's the whole point. That's why we call it good news, is that God has already come and become like us. He knows what it feels like. And heaven actually met earth in the person of Jesus. It's never happened that way. And in a sense, it's never happened since, although it has. Pentecost is the birthday of the body of Jesus now on earth. So heaven can come and be on earth. Is that okay? Something worth getting a little bit excited about. Mm, yeah. Hallelujah. That's why we get a little bit excited, because we're Pentecostals here, aren't we? <laughs> well, we are all Pentecostal because that was our birthday, chaps. Whatever our tradition, our persuasion, we got born then. Not you and me individually, but us as the body of Christ, which continues. Heaven on earth. I think it's amazing, really. I could start preaching here. I think it... Preach it, brother. Um, I think it's amazing that given the pessimistic atmosphere of our culture, we Christians are often the fiercest, most negative critics of the church. I think that's extraordinary. The, here's, here's the thing. The interesting thing is the research shown, carried out by people who mostly aren't believers themselves, but they research into it, they find that people who uh, are committed to their faith, as they would put it, we would say committed to Jesus, and who not only that, they, they get together and they, they, they participate in community of faith, those people are... Uh, healthier, they live longer, they recover from sickness quicker, they're protected even from it, they even stronger immune systems. That physical health, mental health, and health-promoting behaviors, as they put it, right across the piece, people who do that 
are, are, are healthier and more whole and happier than people who aren't. Well, you look very impressed by that statistic. You could say, well, I know Auntie, Auntie Flo down the road. She's been going to church for the last 400 years. She doesn't look very happy. That is not what they're looking at. They're looking at whole populations. Statistically, that is exactly, and it's over and over again. Well, that's quite good. So where did I get to? So anyway, so when we pray, okay, when we pray, and they did at the wedding, didn't they? Your kingdom come, God, Jesus, on earth as it does in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We are agreeing with all that I've just said and a lot more. That God wants to be with us. That his biggest heart, and if we just take only this away from this morning on Pentecost Sunday, that God wants to be with you more than you want to be with him, that wouldn't be a bad thing to take away from Pentecost Sunday, would it? And it's the walls that Jesus... Most of the walls are in our minds, actually. Most of the things that stop us experiencing life and hope and health and healing are more in our minds than anywhere else. And one of the strongholds of our society is, you must be joking, I don't believe a word of that. It's a kind of niggling thing in the back. It's called the critic. It says, you'll never make it, and this probably isn't true, what you're saying. It's all right to stand in front of a few people and say that. But actually, actually, this is the narrative. What is lovely, I don't have time to go into this, but um, what is fantastic is, you've probably heard this before, before, but what was happening at Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, was the precise reversal of all that happened, Genesis chapter 11, when the Tower of Babel, which represents so much of humans' um, endeavors. Some of it is fantastic, but at heart, it's often like saying, we want to become like God. We don't need God we're gods, basically. And when you do that, you may start off speaking the lang- same language, but you end up with confusion. <laughs> In the local language, Babel means gate of God. In Hebrew, they twisted it. They said it means confusion. The day of Pentecost saw a reversal of that. They may have come with their different languages, but you remember when the Holy Spirit came, they all understood each other. One thing about the consequence of the Holy Spirit coming among us is that we start to not misunderstanding, not misunderstand, miss each other, but to begin to get each other as we get God. Got the idea? Not just mentally, but experientially. Anyway, here's some key verses. You will receive power. One thing I just want to say about this, power is good. The word power is, a, is an interesting word, isn't it? Because on one level... It can be quite negative, can't it? And we speak about power politics and those people who've got the power oppressing other people, and that's true, isn't it? Or, or, or men with women physically often abusing them. We could go on at great length. And, and often the word power it becomes something of a, a swear word, doesn't it? Oh, you think you've got the power out here. But hang on a minute. <laughs> power in itself is a neutral thing. It depends on who's using it and why they're using it. Actually, you know, I go to the gym, as you you can see. And there's three things about uh, physical fitness, as far as I understand. One is the cardio stuff, the overall fitness. One is the strengthening, all the pumping iron and stuff. And the other is flexibility, the, um, the, you know, the exercises, stuff like that. And the strengthening one, with all this thing, is, is basically to give you more power. 
And the older you get, now I'm only 43, um, the older you get, the more important it is to that, that dimension because you're losing power. And power is a good thing. If, <laughs> if your car loses power, you're in big trouble, aren't you? So power. The key thing is, what is that power and what's it for? Who's using it on whom or what? And Jesus used a lot of power, didn't he? He was a man of power. But his power was used to raise people up and put them, not put them down, to bring hope and healing rather than damage people. And I think a challenge to the men in our society, in any society, is the physical power and sometimes the emotional power that they can have as well, we can have as men, actually is given to us by God for good purposes, not bad. Because it gets twisted, often, it's not always this way, but often men towards women will use those, that power for very different purposes to what it was given to them for. And I think it's a fantastic opportunity as the people of God to demonstrate, especially men to women or race to race, because I think that's what Pentecost is all about. But that power that we're given is, is used not to put people down, but to lift people up. How about that? Because when the Spirit comes, I just want to read you a few instances. I'm probably getting to the end of my time here. Let me just read you a few examples, a couple of examples. Quite well known. Do you know who that is? It looks like John Wesley, doesn't it? But it's not. It's actually Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Have you ever heard of him? Beginning of the 18th century, two, 300 years ago. The Moravians. Anybody ever heard of the Moravians? Actually, that movement of Christians persecuted started 400 years before in what's now Czech Republic. A man called Jan Hus. And uh, it was persecuted until one day, 1727, arrived in the lands of this man called Count von, uh, Nicholas von Zinzendorf. And he was a man of faith and a man of God. He was only a young man. He was only 27 years old. But he gave succor. And they were refugees. And he took them in. And uh, that was good. And they built this community. They called it the Lord's Watch, Herrenhut. And that went well at first. But in those 300 years before, they developed their own particular kinds of traditions, different traditions. And it wasn't long before they started to... with each other. O over things like... What do you think they fell out of? By over... It was probably, yeah, it was probably personal things. Uh, uh, predestination, baptism. That, ever heard that before? People falling over those? Uh, and they were in trouble. And Zinzendorf, because he was a man of compassion and hope and healing, 27 years old, appealed with these, to these people and said, this isn't, isn't going to work, is it? So much so that they actually made this covenant, this uh, brotherhood, they called it, in May 1727. And uh, they agreed to put their differences aside. Three months later, at a communion service in August, something happened in such a way that they uh, didn't know what was going on. But one of them wrote afterwards, we didn't know whether we were in heaven or on earth. Such was the presence of God. And it was so transformative 
beginning of the 18th century, transformative, that uh, a worship and prayer and intercession uh, meeting began that lasted for a hundred years nonstop. Talk about prayer 24-7. And 30 years later, hundreds of missionaries had been sent around the world and communities were being. Sounds like the day of Pentecost, doesn't it? The Moravians. Let me tell you about another one. Where's this? What do you reckon? How can you know? It's just a very grainy photo. Taken in 1905, 1906 in Los Angeles in a street, tiny street called Azusa Street. What was going on there? A revival was going on, that's for sure. And who led it? It was a 34-year-old, fairly young again, one-eyed son of freed slaves. How about that? Pastor William Seymour. And he was virtually illiterate. He was certainly not an educated man. And he, um, he became hungry for God, basically. And he hadn't experienced anything dramatic, but he began to preach. In fact, he began to preach about these things, even though he hadn't experienced it yet himself. How about that? But he was so passionate about it that they got this ramshackle building in downtown Los Angeles, and they started to do it. Until such time, one day, something happened. And and listen to what it says. Most of them were black. um, There there were a different thing, but most of them were um, uh, poor. Many of them were uh, black or Hispanic. And... uh, in a time when there was lots of repression of the minorities, um, they gave women uh, precedence and leadership. Anyway, what happened was, it was so dramatic, so powerful, that people wrote these things. As people came in, they would fall under God's power, and the whole city was stirred. They shouted until the foundation of the house gave way. The place collapsed. But no one was hurt. It's okay. Nobody was hurt. And uh, one, um, the Los Angeles Times says this, this disgraceful intermingling of races, blah, blah, blah. They have a one-eyed, illiterate Negro, their preacher, who stays on his knees much of the time with his head hidden between two wooden milk crates. He just did that all the time. Uh, He doesn't talk very much, but at times he can be heard shouting, Repent! And he's supposed to be running the thing. They repeatedly sing the same song, the comforter has come. And here's somebody who comes, this kind of church leaders come, and the proud, well-dressed preachers came to investigate. Soon their high looks were replaced with wonder. Then conviction comes, and very often you will find them in a short time wallowing on the dirty floor, asking God to forgive them and make them as little children. (laughs) A one-eyed virtually illiterate man who stuck his head between two crate boxes started what is now the fastest growing church movement in the world a hundred years ago. Interestingly enough, that congregation stayed at about 50 to 60 people. And within about 10 years, eight years, it had died down a bit. But it had triggered such a dramatic outburst, outgrowth, that hundreds of people, thousands, went back to their homes and the Pentecostal, charismatic movement began. Okay, very quickly. What do we need for the spirit to come? I'll tell you what we need. We need to be hungry for it. If we're happy just with the status quo, you know, I like going to church a bit. I might even, you know, read my Bible a bit. 
maybe go to the odd prayer meeting, that will not, I suggest, do the job. And it was like the Moravians. They were desperate. They were desperate. Prayer and worship. Agreement. You remember what the Moravians did in there? And the next one, uh, Acts chapter 1, they put it right. Judas had defected, you remember? And they said, no, actually, we need to do what God's telling us to do. What's God telling us to do? What's God telling this church to do? What's God telling you to do, your family to do? What's he wanting you to change? What's he wanting to do to respond to what he's saying to you, perhaps even right now in your head and heart? As we respond to it, those things, then what happens? I suggest there's an outpouring of three things. We, We love Jesus more than we did before. There's an outpouring of love to Jesus. There's an outpouring of love to each other. And the niggles and the irritations and the disagreements and the selfish ambition somehow gets burnt up. Because when the fire falls, things get burnt up. And the things that get burnt up are the things that one day will get burnt up anyway, tested by fire. And what is left is something that is real and the kind of thing that people will say, like they said of the first Christians, these people are turning the world upside down. See how they, what? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples by the... That's got to look like something. And it starts in this, and an outpouring towards people. I was uh, writing something for people that I worked recently about the church, and this, this came to me. We're in a crisis in the church this, at this point. I suggest. We can discuss that if you like. That's my feeling. Crisis of three things. One of confidence in our message, in our God, in ourselves. Two, uh, a a crisis of culture. We're so kind of saturated with our culture, we don't know which is which. And uh, a crisis of connection, connection with others. When the Holy Spirit comes, it's almost like we can't help it. Now I know there are things we need to do. Need things and things we need to set up. But the more we welcome the coming of the Holy Spirit personally and collectively, the more we will see these kinds of things. Loads of different things. We will get more trouble. You want to be full of the Holy Spirit? Whoops. Expect it not always to go to plan. Because that's what these guys met. But what enabled them to have power in the situation was notwithstanding the situation, something actually flowed out from them. They were actually, yes, provoking the powers around, but able to bring hope and healing. Okay, so uh, that's it. Um, i just end with that verse from Jesus' lips, obviously. And I suppose it goes back to um, what I said earlier, that God is more keen to be in touch with you than you are to be in touch with him. How do we know? Well, look, listen to Jesus' words. If you then are even the have to give you, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to, to those who ask him? Which suggests to me that if you don't ask him, it may not happen quite so much. So here's the thing. I don't know what you've been thinking about. I don't know what your situation is, but I think it's very likely that there are aspects of our experience And if we've been Christians for any length of time, probably more so, where we go, actually, I'm a bit dry. 
I really could do with having a bit more life to me. And maybe there are particular th- the things that Jill was talking about earlier, about the barriers that come up. Why not just ask God to break those barriers down? I think it was George Vera who said, I don't care what you call it, baptism the Holy Spirit, filling the Holy Spirit, whatever. I don't care what you call it, get it. Get it. That's what Jesus is saying. I so want, I so want you to know me. I so want us to have a life together that actually I've gone to such lengths to do it. Why don't we just pray, and then I'll hand back maybe to Nigel, and we can have opportunities for uh, individual prayer as well. Maybe, guys, could you pray that Consuming Fire song again, gently and not too intrusively? Um, Let's stand up. Now, I've thrown a lot of things out there, and, and some of it may or may not have connected, but um, just take a moment to reflect, just quietly. And maybe as you're allowing that to happen, allowing the Holy Spirit, who is here, to, to engage with your thoughts and minds and heart. Maybe there's one thing in particular that rises into your consciousness. Ah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Maybe something that God has said already, before. And rather than saying, oh, I've, I don't know, I don't think I've got that. I'm not spiritual enough, I'm not clever enough, I'm not old or young enough, whatever. Rather than saying that, just say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Come take control. Maybe there's something in particular that you would like some prayer for. Well, that would be great. There'll be opportunities to do that in a moment. But Father, I I thank you so much for your story. I thank you so much for the way you have intervened in the humdrum of our lives. Same old, same old. And you, you have wrought such a change that one day every eye will see and every will know. And in the meantime, we live in this in-between period where you have come, the kingdom is coming, but not fully. And we are at the sharp end of that. So we pray that you will come right now to each of us and to all of us, to Forest Hill Community church in a fresh way. As we open our hearts to you, will you you open your heaven to us? As we offer ourselves afresh to you, we don't have the agenda, we just simply give ourselves over to you. Come and change us. Move among us. Open up those fresh windows into our lives. Come Holy Spirit, we offer ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name. Amen.